Chapter 9, Part 2 of Twenty Years of the Republic, 1885 to 1905, by Harry Thurston Peck. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Bond Sales and Venezuela, Part 2. Such were the opinions most often met with in the East. But all through the West, astonishment, disgust, and rage spread like a prairie fire. Here was the president who had been chosen because he was the enemy of privilege, the champion of the people against consolidated wealth, the man who had denounced monopoly and the communism of capital. Here was that president lowering the credit of the nation at the behest of a syndicate of bankers, adding millions upon millions to the national debt and all for what? To prevent the free use of the silver money with which the treasury was overflowing and which, both by law and custom, was legal tender for all debts. The Democrats of the West felt themselves to be not only injured, but betrayed, and in the violence of their resentment they even refused to credit Mr. Cleveland with upright motives. Many believed that he had himself derived personal profit from his negotiations with the syndicate and the bankers with whom he had to do. They pointed to his intimate friendship with a certain Mr. E. C. Benedict, a promoter who had been interested in various syndicates and in the Chicago Gas Trust and they interpreted this intimacy in a sinister light. From the time of the third bond issue, Mr. Cleveland's following in the West melted completely away, while populism and the cult of free silver were getting a tremendous grip upon the masses. In the country as a whole, the unpopularity of the syndicate affair had not been needed to create a tremendous revulsion against democratic rule. This had already found effective and spectacular expression at the congressional elections of 1894. The Democratic Party had then been in full possession of the government for 18 months. During that time there had occurred a disastrous panic, banks had failed or had suspended by the score, business was at a standstill, and the national debt had been increased by a hundred millions. Moreover, the President had lost control of his own party. The pledge of tariff reform had ended in the pitiful fiasco of the emasculated Wilson Bill, which the President himself had been ashamed to sign. The sugar scandals in the Senate, the quarrels within the party, and the open breach between Mr. Cleveland and other Democratic leaders, these afforded a picture almost unrelieved of unwisdom, incompetence, and failure. The losses incurred during the great strikes had exasperated the corporations. The President's actions in using troops to check disorder had made organized labor hostile to him. Mr. Olney's resort to government by injunction was equally obnoxious. Finally, the President's ill-advised Hawaiian policy added still another charge to the general indictment which the Republicans drew against their divided and distracted opponents. As for the people, they, as usual, judged things in the large, not looking into the causes of what had happened or apportioning the responsibility between the present and the past. They saw only that a year and a half of democratic rule had been a year and a half of disorder and distress. Hence at the polls they showed their displeasure in a tremendous political avalanche, which blotted out the Democratic majority in the Senate, note 17, page 406, and almost annihilated that party in the House where the Republicans now had 248 members to 104 Democrats, the latter being almost wholly from the South. From the northern states scarcely a dozen Democrats were returned. The state election showed a no less overwhelming reaction. Everywhere the Republicans were jubilant and looked forward to 1896 with eager confidence. We can nominate a rag baby or a yellow dog and elect it, was a common boast of theirs. 
the Democrats were downcast and full of gloom. They charged most of their misfortunes upon Mr. Cleveland, yet the party had as yet produced no other leader at whose summons it might once more rally on a new fighting line. It is likely that the President, in his heart of hearts, regarded with considerable equanimity the Republican resumption of control in Congress. Republicans would, of course, oppose him as a matter of party policy, but the open assaults of avowed enemies were much less vexatious than the treachery and defection of those who should have been his friends. Moreover, the really eminent Republican leaders were more favorably disposed toward the President than they openly admitted. His financial doctrines were very much the same as theirs and they respected the firm way in which he had stood by his convictions. In fact, the more radical Democrats had come to regard him as essentially a Republican. Mr. Bryan had already said of the President in his speech of February 14th, He has attempted to inoculate it, the Democratic Party, with Republican virus, and blood poisoning has set in. Hence, while the Republicans in the new Congress which met on December 2, 1895, would do nothing to help the President out of his various perplexities, they refrained from a policy of pinpricks and sought merely to accumulate some telling political capital for use in the presidential contest of the coming year. For this purpose, they continued what they had begun some time before, a general criticism of the manner in which the foreign relations of the government had been conducted by Mr. Cleveland. They wished to show that a democratic president was careless of the country's interests and dignity abroad, that he was just the person to truckle to foreign powers and to think but little of the honor of the flag. His entire course in relation to the Hawaiian question had laid him open to easy censure, but there were many other incidents upon which his Republican critics also seized. Indeed, the foreign relations of the United States during this administration would of themselves have made the period a memorable one. The momentous importance of our domestic problems was in no way so strikingly exhibited as by the fact that they wholly overshadowed a series of most dramatic events of an international character. With one exception, however, these last can be no more than outlined here. In June 1893, a treaty with Russia was ratified. Its third article, relating to the extradition of criminals, was widely denounced even by the democratic press for in pledging the United States government to deliver up to Russia all murderers or those who should be accessories to murder, no exception was made in the case of purely political assassinations. Later events lessened among Americans this tenderness toward crimes of a political character. But in 1893, the ambiguity of the treaty was widely condemned as showing the administration's sympathy with monarchical institutions. Again, a prolonged diplomatic correspondence with the French government led to much friction and gave many persons an opportunity to say that the president was indifferent to the rights of American citizens abroad. The French, having invaded and conquered Madagascar, had found an American ex-council, Mr. John L. Waller, in the enjoyment of certain valuable concessions formerly granted him by the queen whom France had just deposed. Mr. Waller was accused of giving military information to the natives a French court-martial tried and convicted him and sentenced him to twenty years' imprisonment. It appeared to many that the charge and the conviction were arranged simply to deprive Mr. Waller of the concessions which French exploiters coveted. Mr. Cleveland's critics said that he had dealt with this matter in a spirit of indifference and at variance with the spirited traditions of the State Department when in Republican hands. With Germany also there existed causes of irritation. The German Empire had partially excluded American food products, especially cattle and pork, 
on the pretense that they were diseased and that the inspection at American ports was so carelessly conducted as to be practically worthless. The true motive was the protection of German landowners and agrarians against American competition. President Cleveland spoke in his messages to Congress of these unfriendly and injurious acts as vexatious and hinted at a policy of retaliation, yet this latter he deprecated as leading to consequences of the gravest character. More rasping to American susceptibilities was an incident which arose from a clash between Nicaragua and Great Britain. The Central American Republic had expelled a British vice-consul named Hatch and several other British subjects and had subjected them to indignities for which the British government demanded an apology and the payment of $75,000 as a salatium. Nicaragua returned a flat refusal, whereupon a British man-of-war entered the Nicaraguan port of Corinto, landed marines, hauled down the Nicaraguan flag and took possession of the custom-house for the purpose of collecting the revenues until the amount of the indemnity should be secured. Although this occupation was declared to be only temporary, and although Great Britain assured the American government that no infringement of Nicaragua's sovereignty was contemplated, the incident produced a painful impression throughout the United States. Oh, for one day of Blaine! was the cry which went up from the Republican editors, who declared quite unreasonably that the Monroe Doctrine had been violated. President Cleveland took no spectacular action in this affair, but by putting some friendly pressure upon both governments, he persuaded the Nicaraguan president to promise payment of the $75,000, while he induced the British government to terminate the occupation of Corinto. Conservative persons felt that the whole matter had been most admirably managed, but sensational newspapers continued to accuse the president of subserviency to Great Britain and of deserving the comprehensive epithet, un-American. Some even found fault because he had not interfered to check the Turkish massacres in Armenia, although as no American citizens were among the victims, it was hard to say just why the United States should meddle in lands so distant, especially when great Christian powers such as England, which were by treaty responsible, did not go beyond remonstrance. One minor episode, however, was viewed with satisfaction by Americans without regard to party. In the Republic of Brazil, the Navy had revolted, and several of the more southerly states had followed its example. The insurgent leader was Admiral Mello, and it was perfectly well understood that the ulterior object of the outbreak was to restore the empire and replace Dom Pedro or one of his family upon the throne. This was made plain in a proclamation issued by Mello's second-in-command, Vice-Admiral da Gama, who in January 1894, with a part of the Brazilian fleet, was blockading the harbor and city of Rio de Janeiro. The warships of many European powers were also gathered in the harbor. Their commanders were ostensibly neutral, yet secretly willing to aid the rebels in their attempt to overthrow the young republic. Here presently assembled an American squadron under the command of Rear Admiral Benham and consisting of five cruisers. Note 18, page 411. For the first time since the close of the Civil War, the United States was represented in a critical situation by an efficient squadron of modern ships armed with modern guns and with an equipment that was wholly modern. The presence of this powerful group of vessels under the American flag led the foreign commanders to remain quiescent. They tacitly admitted the hegemony of the United States in an affair affecting an American republic. What were the intentions of the government at Washington? These were soon to be made clear. The rebel fleet had not received belligerent recognition, yet it was blockading a great seaport. Would the blockade be recognized? If so, the success of the revolt was almost certain. 
for President Peixoto could not hold out against an enemy that was able to bring Brazilian commerce to a standstill. And Peixoto's downfall meant the downfall of the Republic. In the outer harbor of Rio de Janeiro were several American merchant vessels. Their captains were anxious to enter with their cargoes, but de Gama's ships of war had threatened to fire upon them and had turned them back. On January 28th, one of the American skippers got word from Admiral Benham to take his vessel, the bark Amy, up to the wharves on the next day. He would be amply protected. A brief note from Benham to da Gama notified the Brazilian that the United States did not recognize the blockade and that American ships must be permitted to come and go quite unmolested. Da Gama's answer was to draw up his fleet in battle line. Admiral Benham sent an officer to the commanders of the foreign men of war, requesting them to drop down to the lower harbor so as to be out of his own line of fire on the following day. Meanwhile, all the American ships were put into thorough fighting trim, the decks were cleared, the ammunition hoist made ready, and each cruiser, beginning with the flagship New York, swung around, broadside on, so as to confront the long line of their dark-hulled antagonists. At the time appointed, the Detroit steamed down alongside the little merchant ship to escort her from her moorings to the inner port. As the two moved slowly past the first Brazilian cruiser, it was a breathless moment. The American gunners stood ready to pour a terrific broadside into da Gama's fleet. Suddenly, from one of the Brazilian ships, a musket shot was fired at the Amy. In reply, a gun boomed on the Detroit and a solid shot screamed angrily along da Gama's line, burying itself in the hull of the Brazilian Tahano. But no other shot was heard that day. The Brazilian guns were silent. Da Gama's courage had oozed away. The blockade was broken. The revolt was doomed to failure. And the Republic of Brazil was made perpetually safe from foreign interference. But the most striking chapter in the record of American diplomatic relations under President Cleveland is one that marks a distinct epoch in our history. Even before the end of the next decade, its consequences were seen logically to involve a wholly new and very startling development of American policy on the Western Hemisphere. In the President's first annual message to Congress, note 19, page 412, the following sentence had found a place. The boundary dispute between Venezuela and British Guyana is yet unadjusted. A restoration of diplomatic intercourse between that Republic and Great Britain, and a reference of the question to impartial arbitration, would be a most gratifying consummation. A year later, his second annual message, note 20, page 413, contained a much longer paragraph upon the same subject, again expressing the hope that the question at issue might be settled by reference to arbitration a resort which Great Britain so conspicuously favors in principle and respects in practice and which is earnestly sought by her weaker adversary. Probably not one American in a million took any notice of these sentences at the time when they were given to the public. Certainly no human being could have guessed that the controversy to which they made allusion held within it mighty potentialities of mischief. The very few persons who knew anything about the subject were aware that for more than half a century there had existed a dispute between Venezuela and Great Britain over the boundary line between the domains of the former and the colony of British Guyana. Certain sections of territory were claimed by both countries. Venezuela's title rested upon the alleged explorations and discoveries of early Spanish adventurers, while that of Great Britain was inherited from the Dutch who had ceded the colony to the English in 1810, without, however, defining its boundary. 
the whole question of delimitation was so vague as very naturally to give rise to the dispute which began as early as 1841, when the Venezuelan government protested against the hoisting of the British flag upon what it regarded as Venezuelan soil. A request was also made for the drafting of a treaty which should describe and fix a definite boundary line. From this time a long and desultory diplomatic correspondence was carried on at intervals, sometimes with scant courtesy on the part of the British foreign ministers, who often left the Venezuelan notes unanswered, or in answering gave no definite promise of satisfaction. Meanwhile the English had themselves caused a survey to be made by Mr. Later Sir Robert Schomburg, who established that Lord Aberdeen called boundary posts as a preliminary measure. Great Britain, however, disclaimed any intentions of encroaching upon the disputed territory and regarded the whole subject as still open to negotiation. Here the matter had rested for many years, when in 1876 it was once more revived, and Venezuela appealed to the United States government to interest itself in any further steps that might be taken and to concern itself in having due justice done to Venezuela. But something of much importance had occurred. On the territory in dispute, rich gold deposits had been discovered. It was no longer a question of getting possession of a tropical wilderness, but of securing a great mining field stored with immense and still undeveloped riches. Thenceforth, English unwillingness to arrange a boundary treaty perceptibly increased. The Venezuelan minister in London pressed for some definite solution of the pending controversy. Lord Derby and later Lord Salisbury delayed giving any answer for two whole years. Meanwhile, British settlers, miners, and others were entering the territory and were establishing their homes within its bounds. In 1880, after delaying eight months before answering another Venezuelan note, Lord Salisbury suddenly put forward, as embodying his contention, a claim to lands which, even by all prior British surveys, were Venezuela's. He also mentioned the fact that some 40,000 British settlers were now within the province claimed by Venezuela, intimating that this made it impossible for Great Britain to give it up. In other words, because the long delay in adjusting the boundary, a delay for which Great Britain was largely responsible, had led Englishmen to enter lands that were known to be in dispute, therefore the title to those lands must be vested in Great Britain. From this time Venezuela argued, protested, and appealed in vain. The British foreign ministers held back their answers as before. They would agree to nothing. At last, February 20th, 1887, diplomatic relations between the two countries were broken off. Great Britain had refused to submit the question to arbitration, and Venezuela withdrew her minister from London, publishing a protest, before all civilized nations, against the acts of spoliation which the government of Great Britain has committed. During the last fourteen years of this controversy, the government of the United States had endeavored in a spirit of amity to bring about some equitable adjustment. Under President Arthur's administration, the American minister to England, Mr. James Russell Lowell, had informed Lord Granville that the United States was not without concern as to whatever may affect the interest of a sister republic of the American continent. During Mr. Cleveland's first presidency, the matter had been pressed with much more urgency, at last, in 1886, the American minister, Mr. Phelps, was directed to offer the good offices of the United States in settling the difficulty and to propose its arbitration, if acceptable. Note 21, page 415. To this offer and suggestion, Lord Salisbury somewhat curtly replied that arbitration was at that time impossible. 
Under President Harrison, Secretary Blaine had continued the policy of his predecessors, and had again pressed upon Lord Salisbury some action which would be a preliminary step to arbitration, and to the termination of a wearisome dispute. Note 22, page 416. Lord Salisbury made to this suggestion a wholly non-committal answer, postponing any decision upon the subject. Other communications passed, but to them all no definite or satisfactory reply was given. The tone of the British Foreign Office was one of civil indifference, with just a suggestion of boredom and an intimation that while the United States might be listened to out of courtesy, that country was regarded as thrusting itself into an affair with which it had no concern. Such was the situation when President Cleveland took office for the second time. A weak South American republic had been trying for fifty years to secure from Great Britain a determination of its boundary. The question at issue was purely geographical and historical, one to be settled properly by a commission of impartial experts. Venezuela was willing to abide by the decision of such a board of arbitrators. On the other hand, Great Britain had practically refused to submit her claims to any arbitration, and had at the same time suggested no other way of ending the dispute. In July 1894, Secretary Gresham sent a dispatch, note 23, page 417, to Mr. Bayard, then ambassador to England, which contained some very pertinent and pungent sentences, mentioning the fact that the British Foreign Office had, since 1881, turned a deaf ear to all offers of arbitration, Mr. Gresham went on to say, In the meantime, successive advances of British settlers in the region admittedly in dispute were followed by similar advances of British colonial administration, contesting and supplanting Venezuelan claims to exercise authority therein. Toward the end of 1887, the British territorial claim, which had, as it would seem, been silently increased by some 23,000 square miles between 1885 and 1886, took another comprehensive sweep westward. This comprehensive sweep was taken in order to include the district in which the gold mines had been lately founded. Mr. Gresham's dispatch ended with a strong statement of the President's desire to see the respective rights of the two countries settled by arbitration. By this time, general attention in the United States had been drawn to the question even outside of diplomatic circles, and after President Cleveland had made a direct allusion to it in his message of December 3, 1894, Congress passed a joint resolution, February 3, 1895, urging that Great Britain and Venezuela refer their dispute as to boundaries to friendly arbitration. On the following day, Lord Salisbury sent a dispatch to the British ambassador in Washington containing the assertion that Although Her Majesty's government were ready to go to arbitration as to a certain portion of the territory, they could not consent to any departure from the Schomburg Line. Now, when it is remembered that the Schomburg Line was originally drawn only as a tentative one, that at the time when it was drawn the British Foreign Minister, Lord Aberdeen, had disclaimed its permanency, and that he had specifically called it a preliminary measure to discussion, a mere ex parte survey, in fact, one can measure the assurance of Lord Salisbury in declaring that the absolute acceptance of this line must be an indispensable preliminary to any negotiation whatsoever. First, give me everything I want, and then I will arbitrate as to the things which I care nothing about. Thus might Lord Salisbury's position be not unfairly summarized. At this point, President Cleveland and his new Secretary of State, Mr. Olney, felt their patience breaking down. Hitherto, the attitude of the United States had been entirely disinterested. The American State Department had given Venezuela a helping hand out of compassion for a weak and struggling republic, 
but as to the merits of the controversy no opinion had been held. It was for a court of arbitration to pass upon the facts. But now Great Britain refused a genuine arbitration. Its government coolly asserted that a large and immensely valuable expanse of territory was British soil, although for fifty years the title had been admittedly uncertain. It is ours now, because our people have settled there. We shall hold it by force if necessary, and we refuse to allow our claim to be examined and adjudicated. This, in the view of President Cleveland and his Secretary of State, was to traverse directly the doctrine of Monroe. As to whether their view was historically correct, there has been an immense amount of discussion. Mr. Cleveland summed up his contention in a sentence written long afterward. We had seen her, Great Britain's, pretensions in the disputed regions widen and extend in such a manner and upon such pretexts as seemed to constitute an actual or threatened violation of a doctrine which our nation long ago established, declaring that the American continents are not to be considered subjects for future colonization by any European power. Note 24, page 418. As the President understood the Venezuelan case, Great Britain, by arbitrary assertion of sovereignty over territory to which an American republic had a prima facie claim, was extending her system over American soil and colonizing new portions of the American continent. At once, Secretary Olney, at the direction of the President, began the draft of a long and most elaborately reasoned argument, tracing the history of the Monroe Doctrine, asserting its direct application to the Venezuelan question, declaring the deep concern which the United States felt in the issue as it now shaped itself, and concluding with a strong request that Great Britain submit the whole case to arbitration not as before, out of regard to Venezuela's interests alone, but because the dispute now touched the rights, the honor, and the dignity of the United States. The language of this dispatch was very firm. Note 25, page 419. There was in its tone that which ought to have warned Lord Salisbury of the stern purpose back of it. Mr. Olney wrote that, the United States may and should intervene in a controversy primarily concerning only Great Britain and Venezuela. The United States is to decide how far it is bound to see that the integrity of Venezuela is not impaired by the pretensions of its powerful antagonist. The United States is entitled to resent and resist any sequestration of Venezuelan soil by Great Britain. These were not the smooth words of European diplomacy. They smacked of gunpowder. Indeed, had they emanated from the chancellery of a great European power, Lord Salisbury would most certainly have recognized their gravity. But British foreign ministers had been taught to believe, and with some reason, that American state dispatches are not to be judged by the standards of old-world diplomacy, that a certain rhetorical vehemence in them is to be expected and allowed. Note 26, page 420. In the second place, Lord Salisbury, like all European statesmen, made the fatal error of imagining that the Monroe Doctrine is a mere panache of American diplomacy, something to flutter in a popular harangue or a newspaper article or a presidential message. In fact, a meaningless though effective catchword, good always for a round of unintelligent applause. He did not know that, next to the passionate devotion which the American people give to their ideal of national unity, there is no political sentiment so deep-rooted and so intense among them as that which centers in the doctrine first explicitly enunciated by President Monroe. Foreigners may ignore this feeling. They may speak of it as a superstition and of the object of it as a fetish. Some denationalized Americans may even sneer at it. 
but that the great masses of the people cling to it with an ever-strengthening tenacity cannot be denied by anyone who knows them well. The sagacious student of political psychology may indeed find in this phenomenon evidence of that popular instinct which is often more profoundly wise than the reasoned arguments of statesmen. The extraordinary hold which the Monroe Doctrine has always exercised upon the imagination of Americans may well be due to a vague and still unformulated stirring of the national consciousness which discerns, however dimly, a future wherein the whole of the Western Hemisphere shall be held under the flag of the United States. If this be so, then no wonder that a principle first enunciated under special circumstances should have been expanded and perpetuated to bar all influences which might prevent that splendid dream from coming true. But to Lord Salisbury, the Monroe Doctrine was merely an old-time bit of diplomatic rubbish, of which a few paragraphs from his pen could readily dispose. And he made a third blunder in the estimate which he had formed of President Cleveland and Mr. Olney. He evidently thought that, like certain of their predecessors, they were now engaged in the periodical performance popularly known as Twisting the Lion's Tail. Lord Salisbury remembered Mr. Cleveland's dismissal of Sir Lionel Sackville West because of the exigencies of a political campaign. No doubt he felt that Secretary Olney's stand in the Venezuelan matter was taken to offset the administration's general unpopularity and to win a little cheap applause. The British Premier had not forgotten his correspondence with Secretary Blaine over the Bering Sea fisheries. In that correspondence, Mr. Blaine had used undiplomatic language and had beaten the big drum. But at the critical moment he had yielded rather than take the responsibility of an open rupture with Great Britain. Note 27, page 421 These Americans are all alike, the noble Marquis doubtless told himself. Treat them firmly and they will not go beyond tall talk. Little did he know the two men with whom he now had to do, Americans of the older stock, of New England ancestry, as dogged and as stiff-necked as any of their race who had remained in Britain. Lord Salisbury, then, wholly failed to recognize the seriousness of the issue which confronted him. He took his time about composing a reply to Mr. Olney's note, and indeed when Congress met on December 2nd, no answer had yet come from him. In the President's message of that date, this fact was noted and the promise was made that the British note should be submitted to Congress when received. When it did come, Lord Salisbury's communication was in the form of two separate dispatches, addressed to the British ambassador in Washington, but meant to be submitted to the American State Department. The first note dealt with the relation of the Monroe Doctrine to the Venezuelan question, and also the matter of arbitration. The second discussed the whole previous history of the boundary dispute, the tone of both these notes was intensely, if unintentionally, irritating. Something of conscious patronage was there, the air of an intellectual superior trying to make a simple matter plain to an inferior understanding. There was also, subtly suggested, the attitude of the great nobleman listening with patient condescension to the demands of some intrusive, persistent person whom it would be undignified to treat uncivilly. It was, in short, the pose of Sir Lester Dedlock submitting to an interview with Mr. Rouncewell, the Ironmaster. Lord Salisbury graciously explained that the Monroe Doctrine was a highly respectable principle, originally enunciated by a distinguished statesman, but that it long ago became obsolete. It bore no relation to the state of things in which we live at the present day. Furthermore, even if it did, Her Majesty's government could not accept it as sound and valid, for it had no place in the law of nations. 
no statesman, however eminent, and no nation, however powerful, are competent to insert into the code of international law a novel principle which was never recognized before, and which has not since been accepted by the government of any other country. Again, his lordship was not prepared to admit that the United States had any concern whatever in disputes which might arise between the states having possessions in the Western Hemisphere. Still less could he accept the doctrine that the United States possessed the right to demand the arbitration of such disputes. In other words, the sum and substance of this note might be expressed as, Mind your own business and we will mind ours. Regarding arbitration itself as a mode of settling international differences, Lord Salisbury read Mr. Olney a little lesson, a sort of political essay on the subject, ending in another very obvious snub. Arbitration, said his lordship, is not free from defects. It is hard to find an impartial arbitrator. It is not always easy to enforce the award when made. In short, whether or not to arbitrate in a given case is generally a delicate and difficult question. Only the two parties to the controversy can decide this question. The claim of a third nation to impose this particular procedure on either of the two others cannot be reasonably justified and has no foundation in the law of nations. End of chapter 9, part 2